Hello, this is Jeremy, and welcome to my podcast, Penny Tolerable. And I have my guest with me, my usual guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Nathaniel. <laughs> and yeah, I'm now on 100% of these, <laughs> so I'm the standing guest star. <laughs> yes, you are. Um, today we're going to be talking about Alan Moore. We're not going to be talking uh, about all of Alan Moore because there's too much Alan Moore to talk about. There needs to be less Moore. Exactly. No, no, we... <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I think Senator Wynan should do more thinking and less Wynan. Yeah, uh, I love Alan Moore. I think he lives up to basically all the hype. Yeah, he's uh, one of those creators where you, every now and again, you get a property or a creator like that where they actually are that good. Like my stance on Fury Road, yes, it actually is that good. Alan Moore, a good, like, 88% of the time. I'm going to need to pick a less white power number. Uh, like, 87% of the time <laughs> uh, lives up to his reputation. Good, good stuff. Yeah, um, and in talking about Alan Moore, we're going to basically start from the, the beginning, the, the beginning of his career. Um, one of his earliest uh, projects was for a local Northampton uh, magazine. It was a strip that he would do called Maxwell the Magic Cat, and uh, I've read some of them. They're very, they're very Alan Moore. It's if, if Alan Moore did Garfield, basically. Okay. It's, See, and as big a fan as I am, these are some that I never read. Uh, like, there'd be like a strip posted in a book or on a website. But uh, other than that, these are some that were a little too primordial, so I never really sought them out. Yeah, I've, I've only read a few, but it's... It's very Alan Moore. It's very... I'm not going to say overwritten, because that sounds like an insult. But oh, he's... I, I, like, I don't know about Maxwell and Magica. Some of his stuff is overwritten. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if I were to, you know, ding an author that I mostly like, sometimes it's fine, and then sometimes you're like, yeah, not for nothing is his second novel one of the, I think, one of the 12 longest ever published in the English language. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, he actually quit the magazine because of, uh, he quit doing Maxwell the Magic Cat for the magazine because in that magazine, the title of it escapes me. I didn't do well enough research. <laughs> um, uh, there was a there was an editorial, and uh, it it was a uh, supposedly homophobic rhetoric. This was back in the uh, early '80s, I believe, when that kind of stuff was more commonplace. Gay people weren't getting any pushback in the early '80s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was. Um, you know, you look at literature and television and movies from back then. They're it was very homophobic. I don't think people realize how far that has come. But he he 
he quit because of that, and which is that just shows his uh, his willingness to stick to his guns. Yeah, which is something that will uh, uh, we'll probably talk about this in a follow up episode because it manifests more and more as his career goes on. But uh, he is principled to a sometimes annoying degree. Yes, and that's to me that is the right word for it. Like principled doesn't have to mean good. It does in this case, but like the the Joker from the Dark Knight is an incredibly principled character. I say I'm going to do something, and I do something. It just so happens that Alan Moore says, uh, "You know, I'm going to stand up for this. If you do this, I'm going to quit." Yada yada. He um, never does things by halves. I think is how Neil Gaiman once put it. And to me, that's commendable. Other people find it insufferable, and it is insufferable sometimes. <laughs> Quit making the rest of us look bad. Um, also, I think in addition to the uh, homophobic editorial, uh, Maxwell the Magic Cat had to fold due to uh, legal action, right? When they found out that he was not, in fact, the magical cat. <laughs> because we know who is. Who is the magical cat, please don't. Mr. Mephistopheles, do I have to explain <laughs> everything? Okay. Um, oh, well, I never was there ever yeah. got so clever as magical Mr. Mistopheles. Yes, Maxwell. So, uh, what did Alan Moore do after moving from the strips to the funny books? Uh, I believe his first uh, outing was uh, for a magazine called 2000 AD, which was a very popular uh, comic book. I think it is. It, it was and is. It, it's basically the equivalent of, uh, you know, France has the magazine Pilote and uh, Britain has 2000 AD. It's where, like, all the all the big characters were. Which we don't really have an equivalent. Even going back to, like, the, the 60s and whatnot, it feels like since it at least the Marvel Revolution, like the Stanley Jack Kirby era, <clears throat> even since then, it feels like the magazines are character based. I can't think of like an oversized anthology in the states that fills the same niche or launched a character of the popularity of Judge Dredd or Asterix. Yeah. Oh God, it's Judge Dredd in the background right now. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> uh. Yeah. Judge Dredd would hate Alan Moore, by the way. Oh, oh my god, he would hate him so much. Yeah. Sorry, everyone. Somebody somebody outside is being really cool. Um, but yeah, the, the magazine would have characters like... Uh, there would be Doctor Who stories. This was, I believe, the Tom Baker era. Mm -hmm. uh, we would have Axel Pressbutton, the psychotic cyborg, mm -hmm. who... I just love saying that. Yeah, the character's not even that great. He's just fun to say. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So there's there's a lot of early stuff, as I recall. You can look up. Uh, there's Alan Moore strips about Darth Vader, if I'm not mistaken. And there was one uh, very early. I want to say like 1982. He did a sort of original strip called Skiz, which was not good. Especially, it had like not good relative to his other stuff, but it has uh, origins of note because uh, the magazine found out that E.T. was coming out and they knew that E.T. was going to be a success. So they just decided, we'll do an E.T. type story. 
Yeah. The result is that the first 10 minutes of E.T. are the same as, like, the first 10 pages-esque is, but then they didn't get the film. They, like, the comic would be finished before then. So Alan just made up what uh, he wanted the rest of it to be. The result is, like I say, not really a good story, but it is an interesting one. Alan Moore's, like, kind of left-wing, socialist-leaning politics manifest, uh, surprisingly. Uh, the villain is a weird South African hitman guy named after a bit character in a Warren Zevon song. <laughs> Speaking of somebody who doesn't actually love E.T. that much, I don't think Skiz is great, but I don't think it's worse than E.T., actually. <laughs> um, and he worked with, if I'm remembering my artist, I think it's uh, Jim Bakey, who we collaborate with on uh, the first American strips way, way later. But, mm-hmm. uh, but there are bigger fish to fry, right? Like, what are yeah. some of his, his really good strips from the mid-80s? Um, the first really good ones, I believe, are D.R. and Quench mm-hmm. and The Ballad of Halo Jones. Yeah. Uh, D.R. and Quench is... They're two aliens. One of them looks like kind of a pink hornless rhino, I, and that's Quench. And then there is uh, another one. He look another one who looks like basically if a gremlin was a greaser, and that's Dr. Yeah, I feel like as far as physical descriptions, people could probably just look this stuff up. Um, so what was what do you think of uh, Dr. and Quench? Uh, it was it was actually quite popular, but relatively limited run. Like the whole thing's collected in a single album, pretty mm-hmm. easily. Uh, how did you like Dr. and Quench? Dr. and Quench, I really liked. Um, the thing about comics like that, where the characters are wildly antisocial and destructive. It, it either works really well or works not at all. Like, you have stuff like Milk and Cheese by Evan Dorkin, mm-hmm. which I love Evan Dorkin, but I do not like Milk and Cheese. Yeah, that's... And then you have stuff that really works, like Sam and Max by uh, Steve Purcell. Yeah, that's a good point, and I'm, like, I'm glad you mentioned Milk and Cheese, because, yeah, Evan Dorkin's rad... Like, Eltingville, for instance, which was running concurrently with those strips, is one of, like, the funniest, meanest, greatest <laughs> comics you're going to find. No doubt Evan Dorkin can write. Milk and Cheese was just, like, what if we had two guys that, like, they yell nonsense and they run around with, like, like bats and boards with nails in them. And it's just chaotic. And you're like, I don't... This... This sounds like the like a first year Adult Swim series. Yeah. Before they had to add jokes back when it could just be like, oh my god, like they're swearing. Um, whereas you're right, something like Sam and Max is anarchic and destructive, but it's packed with actual jokes. And that's kind of how I look at DR and Quench. Sam and Max is funnier than DR and Quench. Sam and Max yes. is funnier than many things that humanity has ever created. DR and Quench is very charming. Um, it mostly works. Maybe the relatively short run means it doesn't wear out its welcome. I think the whole thing maybe peaks with the uh, DR and Quench go Hollywood storyline. And I want to say it is aided immeasurably by 
Yeah, Alan Davis art. Oh, the yeah. art is beautiful. Yeah, Alan Davis would be a frequent collaborator with Alan during this era and a lot of other people. Um, he maybe gets my vote for the best mainstream artist I can think of. Mm. Because, I, you know, like Brian Boland would do covers and the occasional specials. Mike Zuli would do an independent comic here and there. Talking about somebody who would, like, sit down and do four years worth of Excalibur comics. Yeah. Like, the beauty, the fluidity, the character design, the expressiveness, the, the cleanness. Like, I, I don't know. Alan Davis is at least as good an artist as Alan Moore is a writer at this stage in both of their developments. Um, mm -hmm. And didn't Alan later disown D.R. and Quench? Which Alan? Oh, uh, Alan Moore. You know, the, the Allens. <laughs> no, Alan Grant. He never wrote the characters. He just wasn't a fan. I, uh, 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 Alan Gregory, you know, the hit Fox sitcom. <laughs> oh, okay, Alan Gregory. Okay. Now, D.R. and Quint, they get a hold of some nuclear weapons, but they probably shouldn't use them. It's kind of tasteless to do that in the 1980s. That was um, the reason, right? Alan was like, if there was one character that I could disown, it would be D.R. and Quint. We shouldn't be joking about nuclear weaponry. And, like, his, again, his heart's in the right place. But it's like when a, a celebrity says, whatever, laugh. But it's like, it's like when a celebrity says, uh, oh, I shouldn't have been in that Tarantino movie because some guy shot a bunch of people. I'm like, I don't, that's like a discussion for another time. I don't think that's a one-to-one -one correlation. They're cute. They're disposable. That's what makes it good, I think. Yeah. Um, something with a little more weight, since you bring it up. Uh, I think Halo Jones maybe has more staying power than DR and Quench. Yeah. Yeah. Halo Jones is... Uh, it's, it's genuinely beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's one of those comics where... It's kind of awe-inspiring, because it's the story of... And a lot of people come down on Alan for being misogynistic. I don't know why they say that. You know, he his, char his female characters are just as strong as uh, Neil Gaiman's characters. If you want a strong female Alan Moore character... Find the Ballad of Halo Jones. She's tough as nails. Well, it's funny you should say because um, I think she's a great character. And yeah, I, I think the issue of like Alan Moore, not like, oh, he's a misogynist. I don't think he is one little bit. I think some of his works are better than others in like dealing with those issues. Um, but Halo herself, like, she's. A strong female character in the sense that she is strongly written, that she is yes. well written. She's not a strong female character in the sense that she's like a badass. And that was even something that uh, I think Alan Moore had pushed back get, uh, a little bit against when he created the character. Because he said if women did appear in these comics, they would be ass kickers. They would be, like, statuesque, big boobs, like, gone as big as they are. And they'd, they'd like, stand up for themselves, but it would, it would be, like, the, like, 
who are you calling a chick? And then they, like, shoot a guy. Yeah. Strong female character basically meant, like, Julie Strain's character from the heavy metal yeah. comics and movies. Too. Yeah, the, that uh, Kevin Eastman did. Uh, and so his goal was not that she's a wimp or anything, but he wanted to just write a normal woman. Like, a normal person that gets into big situations. So, the first storyline, which is honestly the weakest, is she's just kicking around, like, this futuristic mall. It's it's probably kind of bold for the 80s. It looks a little quaint today. Like, Mm -hmm. the alien setting and everything. From there, she gets to the... uh, there's the long middle section, which is where the series really hits its stride, where she's on, like, the intergalactic, like, the Titanic, if it was a spaceship, and never sank. Yeah. And uh, then the longest section is the third one, where she goes to war, which is not only one of the best anti-war stories you're likely to find in a comic or anywhere else, but that's when it goes from being a very good comic to a masterpiece. And I think one reason that works is because uh, Halo herself, even in the military setting, is not a badass. She mm-hmm. doesn't turn into the ultimate soldier. It's just, hey, how would you like going to war? A nightmare space war on Jupiter where time doesn't even work the way it's supposed to. Like It, it would just break your brain and your soul and everything else. Yeah. And there you go. And... and of every single uh, Alan Moore series, this is the one that I wish had gone on longer. Because he had a couple that were very long in the making, but he did get to finish them. Like, eventually he finished From Hell. Eventually he finished Lost Girls. Um, eventually he finished League, but yeah. that's for another... Yeah, and uh, there was the one he never finished famously was supposed to be like his magnum opus big numbers which is not bad like the, the two issues that actually got published but it, it it's there's not enough of it for me to go like no what happens next whereas halo there's three books it was originally meant to run i think nine volumes mm-hmm. and like you have like a framing material that says like she became a famous figure and there's they're studying her in university and there was like promo art one of the books would be her becoming a pirate queen and she is such an innately charming and human character yeah uh and it's so atypical to most comics and even atypical to a lot of alan's other stuff where i'm like man if they could have just like just one of these every couple of years and it's old enough now he would be finished at this point. I'm like, I would love to have seen where he was going with that. So that's, to me, that that's the one that got away that hurts the most out of all this stuff. Mm. It's just, it's super good. Real, real good stuff. Yeah. The, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, next um, venture of 2008, I believe it was, Actually, I don't think it was 2080. I think what it was Marvel UK. Yeah, it, that we're venturing into at this point. Well, there's a couple of different ones. There's 2000 AD, uh, which ran the strips you mentioned. Marvel UK, where he did his very limited Marvel work, and then probably his two most famous strips, which we'll probably get to in a minute, are from uh, Warrior. Yeah, but you want to hit uh, 
Well, let's, let's just blow the surprise. You want to talk about Captain Britain? <laughs> yeah, Captain Britain. Yeah. Um, now, this was the Captain Britain... Correct me if I'm wrong, because my memory is hazy. This was the original Captain Britain, like the one that wore the mostly red suit, the blue mask, and had the scepter. Yeah. And this was the one, the, the one that fought uh, one of the best villains I can think of, Mad Jim Jaspers. Yeah. Did, did you ever read the Captain Britain strip that Alan did? I am not sure I did read it, but I cannot remember reading it. Okay. I remember loving Mad Jim Jaspers, though. Yeah. So, should I should I take point on this one? Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so, Alan, this is something that would happen uh, more than once in his career. He was called in to uh, start writing a strip that somebody else exited at the the last minute. So he does so. He takes over the reins on Captain Britain uh, in one of the... It's not the very first chapter, but it's like his third chapter or so. He kills Captain Britain, and then he has an uh, issue where Merlin and his daughter Roma resurrect Captain Britain, and as they're doing so, Merlin goes through his whole history and also kind of revamps the character and also gives him his Union Jack suit which is the best design for the character, way better than the kind of dumb-looking red one that you're describing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if this sounds familiar, it's because he would do the exact same thing with Swamp Thing. Yeah. He was hired to come in, so he kills off most of Captain Britain's supporting characters, like he had an elf sidekick named Jackdaw. Um, he wraps up a bunch of stupid storylines, which didn't seem like they were going anywhere, he sets things mostly to rights. And honestly, the early Captain Britain stuff is, even after Alan kind of makes it his own, it's somewhat rough going. He he fights a robot. He fights an assassin. Uh, Psylocke shows up, which is it's so weird to me. Psylocke from the X-Men is Captain Britain's sister. <laughs> it's yeah. like, I get that it is a Marvel property, but it's, God, we need, we need to do an, an episode on Excalibur sometime. It's a fun book, and the genealogy of that series is so bizarre. It would be like if, like, you did the X-Men, but the two of the characters were Alego and Dick Tracy. <laughs> it's just pulled from so many different yeah. sources. It's wild. Um, many of which an American audience would have no access to when the series started. So anyways, the Captain Britain series... Uh, and Captain Britain himself is, frankly, kind of a boring character. He's a lummoxy alcoholic. There's a reason he works better on a team than as a, a lead. Um, it's mostly effective because it has uh, two villains. One of these is the Fury, the shape-shifting, purple, time-traveling robot, which seems very, very much in the mold of the Terminator, but actually appeared in the book before... <laughs> James Cameron's Terminator came out. I'm not saying Cameron copied it, I'm just saying, like, kind of cool that they beat him to the punch with that. And then, as Jeremy points out, there's Mad Jim Jaspers, who, in the comic, he, and he appears in different realities, because Captain Britain's all about, like, hopping the multiverse. Uh, Mad Jim Jaspers is this shrimpy, gap-toothed, Tory, ponce weirdo, I'm sorry, nonce and pawns. Um, he's clearly meant to be like an evil Terry Thomas. Mm-hmm. 
And the trick is, uh, he has reality warping powers. Which, there's a lot of, like, powerful mutants. Much like Jamie Brannock, who yeah. will appear later in Excalibur. And much like uh, Proteus from the X-Men comics. And you've got, like, real tough guys like Magneto and Mr. Sinister and Apocalypse, but the most nightmarishly powerful mutant characters tended to be those guys like James Jaspers and James Braddock. Um, and Alan really runs with this, and... Ja there's like one Jaspers from one universe appears and he's just like this sinister Mad Hatter figure. The one that appears by the end of the book is godlike. And it actually causes a crisis where the power of all the Jasperses converge on just one of them. So it actually becomes a threat to like the fabric of reality because he's too powerful. Mm -hmm. And so he is this like goofy looking he looks like a, an idiot villain from an old Ealing film mm -hmm. or like somebody Peter Sellers might play but then he can shapeshift, he can bend reality around him, like he's a genuinely kind of frightening character. There's a scene where he gets an assassin and makes him grow smaller versions of himself all over his body like polyps mm -hmm. so it's really kind of upsetting and again the whole Captain Britain run is too all over the place to be, like, again, like, good comic, not a great comic, maybe. The whole thing bumps up, like, three star ratings for me because, again, Alan Davis. And, it, like, the even when the story is so-so, the comic is just gorgeous to look at. And they, they said Alan Davis was the artist where if you said, uh, oh, well, a, a character is in space jail and uh, 800 uh, aliens are looking at him, Alan Davis is the artist who would go, okay, and then draw you 800 different aliens. Yeah. So there's, there's a scene where the villainous uh, Saturnine is on trial and there's like a stadium full of aliens. Almost any other artist would give you a front row and then like some circles for heads in the back. Alan Davis is like, no, no, like I'll have one that looks like a parrot, and I'll, I'll put Dr. and Quinch in there somewhere. Yeah. And, yeah. It's like Ralph McQuarrie who did yes, yeah. uh, the original Star Wars designs. Like he, he would just do everything. Bottomless imagination. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Um, we go now to uh, an another warrior character, uh, Miracle Man, or if you are British, Marvel Man, we are going to be saying Miracle Man because I just think it sounds cooler. Yeah, Miracle Man's a better name. Yeah. Actually, I prefer Man of Miracles because I think Todd McFarlane had the strongest Miracle Man run out of all the creators. <laughs> and legally, he owns the character, so oh, it's only gosh. fair to go with his preferred nomenclature. Yeah. Okay, that's... Uh... Okay, that's a whole episode right there. Uh, what can you tell me about Mary, Miracle Man? What Mir can you tell me about Mary Miracle? Miracle Man is... Bear with me. He was a character that was created by a British comic book company after they lost the rights to Captain Marvel, the Shazam Captain Marvel. Yeah. They changed it slightly... And made him, instead of Billy Batson, he's Mickey Moran. And instead of saying Shazam, he says Kimota, Atomic Backwards. 
and you know you had all the power. Just got that. Yeah, and uh, eventually it went under, and uh, I think Warrior had the rights to him, and they. Oh asked, boy. Oh boy. Yes, and they asked uh, Alan to revamp him, and he he is revamped. I say revamp. Some people say reboot. I say revamp. Um, I don't say sabotage. I say sabotage. <laughs> you sicken me. Um, yeah. Uh, in the new story, he's a schlubby reporter with a very plain Jane wife named Liz. And he doesn't March. know... Sorry. What's <laughs> well, the... Okay. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, he doesn't know who he is. Like, he remembers something, but doesn't quite know what it is. Like, it's a word that he can't really remember. And then during a terrorist attack, he sees the word atomic backwards. He remembers Kimota. He says, Kimota, there's an explosion. He becomes Miracle Man. And, uh, I'm not going to get into the whole... The twists and turns of the series, but it's really I'm I'm not going to use the word fun because it's not a lot of fun. It's not a lot of fun. It's good. It's just not a lot of fun. Like mm -hmm. you look at stuff like Kid Miracle Man's Massacre, and it's amazing, but yeah. it's just not fun. And but yeah, you know you have a lot of characters. That he brings in to uh, the series, like the Warp Smiths. Yeah. And uh, he brings back most of the old uh, characters from the old Marvel Man series, like uh, Dr. Emil Garganza, Kid Miracle Man, Young Miracle Man. And. It's um, you. You kind of see the seedlings of what he would do with Watchmen. Yeah, Watchmen is more polished, but this is earlier. I've actually heard from some people who say they prefer Miracle Man because it's less technically marvelous, but is arguably a more organic in its approach. Uh, also, one of the supporting characters that they bring in along with the Warpsmiths and uh, Miracle Dog and everything. Um, does one of the characters have any time for crime? Oh, no, he's the man with no time for crime. He, a, yeah, Big Ben. The he's man Big with no Ben, time the man crime. with no time for crime. All right. Yeah. Um, the legal issues surrounding this character are nuts. I mean, creatively, like you say, he is the British ripoff. Of an American character who is a ripoff of Superman, but was actually maybe more fun and yes. often better selling than Superman. Um, and so it was kind of understood that I think it was Des Skin, I think was the publisher. And he had Alan write it, then Alan gave Neil Gaiman his blessing to do his still incompleted run of the character. And then when uh, Todd McFarlane awesome guy Todd McFarlane uh, bought up uh, a bunch of properties from Warrior and from uh, no it was actually Eclipse the American publisher he thought he had the rights to Miracle Man then there was a legal battle 
where instead of taking the rights to Miracle Man, I think Neil took the rights to a bunch of characters he had co-created with Todd McFarlane but hadn't <laughs> been paid for, uh, and then got paid handsomely. I think gave most of it to charity or something, or the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund or one of those. So it is only, it's like 2014 maybe, when decades of legal rights are finally ironed out and Marvel has the clout to, well, oh, Dead Skin still owns 60%, screw it, like, we'll buy them out. Which is now, they finally reprinted all the Miracle Man comics and it's still a shambles because nowadays Alan refuses to be credited because he hates Marvel. So it really awkwardly says, by the original writer. Yeah, Alan has been using that a lot, actually. Yeah, and so... They reprinted the Alan Moore run on Miracle Man because it actually exists. Neil Gaiman's Miracle Man trilogy, which was cut right in half before he could finish it, they were making a big deal about uh, how that was supposed to come out, and still nothing. They've had the rights, they, they had like a five-year lead-in, and Neil still hasn't written a Miracle Man comic since, I want to say, 1993. So... Uh, not going to hold my breath to see that one concluded. But yeah, the Miracle Man run is very excellent. I will be honest, uh, when I read it uh, not too long ago, I, I reread the series when uh, Marvel put out the new editions, and they had new art, and they collected. It's a very scattershot series. There's like side stories. There's a story that like takes place in the future, but wound up being out of continuity, so like where you mm -hmm. even place it, the yesterday gambit. It's honestly kind of a mess until they, they about halfway through, they figure out what they want to do with it. Um, Miracle Man is a comic that I would rate pretty highly. I honestly liked it less than I remember when I finally reread it. Um, just, I, I think once upon a time, it was one of my favorites. And the difficulty of obtaining it during those legal battles. There was a point where those eclipse issues could, like, you know, pay your mortgage. Yeah. Um, so I think the scarcity kind of made it the Cuban cigar of Alan Moore comics. Uh, and when I finally read it, it does hold up. There's a lot of good stuff, but coming to it in like 2015 or something I was just like man I don't need to see like what if Superman killed people it, not, not, it's not his fault but so many things have ripped it off since it came out it makes it difficult to go back to it and it's uh, like I say continuity wise even artistry every two or three issues they had a new artist so it goes from Alan Davis, who we may have spoken about on this. Um, no, it starts with Gary Leach, who has like this weird, almost photorealistic style. Yeah. He's amazing. I don't think it was actually a very good fit for the comic, maybe. From there, you have Alan Davis. He does a couple issues. There's a gap before the American publisher picks it up, so they can't get Alan Davis anymore. There's like an issue and a half by Chuck Austin, who would later become enshrined as like, Probably the worst X-Men writer of all time. <laughs> uh, they, it's competent. It is not gobsmacking art. You get two issues from Rick Veitch, who I'm actually a big fan of, but again, it, 
I don't think he was like much of a fit. I think it was just like a friend of Alan's who could do the work at the time. It's only volume three Olympus when the series really becomes what it's supposed to be. I think mm-hmm. it emerges from its cocoon. <clears throat> Those issues are amazing. As a standalone graphic novel, Olympus is phenomenal, and it has uh, John Tottlebenart, who is just amazing. There's various reasons he doesn't do as much work as he used to, but look up look up his Swamp Thing art sometime. Like this amazing pre-Raphaelite style, and that's also where you get the return of Kid Miracle Man, which is just one of the darkest stories even for Alan who doesn't have a shortage of them um, so like Olympus I would rank as an all timer but it feels like there's so much work to get there Like, I still like it but I'm not sure I love it the way I used to and one published concurrently with Miracle Man there's a sister series which I think is a lot more consistent which is V for Vendetta I'm going to get into that in a second. Well, that was me teeing it up for you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, there's one thing I wanted to say about Miracle Man. It's something of a personal story of... I was saying how... Miracle Man is amazing, but not beautiful. There are parts of it that are beautiful, like... I think it's beautiful. Personally, when I read, um, when I read the part where uh, Liz has Winter, the Miracle Baby, I cried. I'm not ashamed to say I cried. It's one of the few times I have cried while reading a comic book, baby. Come on. <laughs> I'm just teasing. I know. But yeah, those. I know, baby. I just got really weepy reading that moment. It was just a very, very beautiful moment. Yeah. And also, uh, famously, uh, graphic. Yeah. It's just uh, not. We see everything. Yeah, not grotesque, but it, it's just. Uh, yeah. Like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not academic. The other one starts with A. Whatever. And it's a very frank depiction of Anatomical. It. Anatomical, yeah. And they uh, have... Uh, there was even a, like a Surgeon General's warning, almost as a parody, that was put on the cover to Miracle Man number 9. Um, tastefully done, but again, just one more way that the comic was vastly ahead of its time. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah, but there's... Like, don't get me wrong, I, I still think very highly of the series, and there's moments in there, like, when Moran essentially commits suicide, like, he mm-hmm. turns into Miracle Man and doesn't want to turn back. Um, yeah. And not, not, to, not to spoil, just read it, like, track it down and read it. It is worth your time. I, if I undersell it, I, that's not my intention. Certainly there's stuff in Olympus where just, like, page after page after page, it'll just keep breaking your heart, to be honest. And I, the tall of an art, like he, he, Rick Veitch and Alan Moore would work together on a swamp thing. But I think the materials available to the art team were better on Miracle Man. So it looks consistently better than 
a DC comic with the same art team would at the same time. Yeah. If that makes any sense. And now going into a comic that has a lot of cultural relevance now, (laughs) uh, we talk about V for Vendetta. Well, it's worth noting, Jeremy, the British don't actually have a V sound, so it would be pronounced We for Wendetta. We for Wendetta? Yeah, we for, yeah, yeah. That second silent V in the middle of the word <laughs> Vendetta. Yeah. We for Wendetta. They say we are watching Whoa. <laughs> v for Vendetta is the novelization of the movie Congo. For all you people who love Congo, for all you people who can't get enough Herkimarkle Markle. Are you okay? Did you just say your miracle bad word? Yeah. I'm sorry, this this is literally all I remember from Congo is Tim Curry going, they say the watching vo. Okay, getting back to what's actually what we're actually no, talking we're about. V for Vendetta, which is about uh, a fascist government and it's, a uh, girl who gets embroiled into a plot brought on by a mysterious masked man, a mysterious masked anarchist who always seems to be one step ahead of everyone else. Yeah. V for Vendetta takes place in present-day London with no changes whatsoever. Yep, basically. <laughs> I don't, we, I'm not... I don't really want to get <laughs> super political, but... Why? This is the Alan Moore podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, fair point. But yeah, V for Vendetta is... Uh, I can understand why people would want to read it today. Um, of course, a person... If you haven't read V for Vendetta, you probably know what V looks like because he his face is the Guy Fawkes mask, yeah. which is worn by Anonymous. Although it's funny that... And there are a lot of ways that uh, Moore's work has become memefied. People don't always notice that the anonymous logo, the question mark guy, is actually the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen guy. Um, anonymous is less of a thing than it was. Mm-hmm. I feel like in this day and age, the goal has shifted from like the power that anonymity gives you online and that's now kind of been inverted to, no, no, I want to be famous online. I, I want to become the most notorious shit poster on Twitter or Reddit or Facebook or whatever. Like, there, There is nothing to be gained by hiding your identity. So as a loose organization, which it never was to begin with, really, I, I guess it still exists as a concept, but outside of like parodies... When was the last time you actually heard a real thing about Anonymous? Actual guy in a hoodie with a Guy Fox mask. Not much, actually. Right? But nevertheless, even if we're just talking like 2005 to 2015, like the effect on real world culture, I think, was just incalculable. The, the interesting thing is, uh, Alan Moore being a self-proclaimed anarchist was just tickled pink that Anonymous decided to use V's mask. And I warned you, I'm quite ticklish. I'm going to give you belly wants. My beard's going to get stuck in your navel. Um, 
I like how my, my Alan is terrible. It just sounds like a meter Brian Butterfield. <laughs> Butterfield not. I'm going to disown the Quitch. Wait, you didn't let me finish the Ballad of Halo Jumps. <laughs> um, this continuity is so loose, I'll have to buy some new ones. Uh, let's just do this for the rest of the hour. Um, what do you artistically, like, we probably need to talk about the politics of V as its own thing. Artistically, how does it work as a story for you? Um... I think it works. There are some parts where I, I, I really don't know what to say. Um, it, I think it works. Generally, it works. But, uh, yeah, I generally think it works. Did you just take a minute to tell me that you think it works? <laughs> Okay, sorry. Um, there, there is a character that's kind of a red herring, and uh, sometimes it takes you on twists and turns, like any good narrative does. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't really have anything else to say about it. No. I like it. I generally like it. Yeah, I think V is set up at an interesting point because. It is easily more consistent than any of the work Alan had done up to that point, but it lacks some of the uh, theatrics, which is weird to say of a series that begins with uh, the halls of parliament being blown up and a literal fireworks display. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, there's probably no moment that stands out as boldly as like the Kid Miracle Man Massacre. Uh, all, all of the characters, even V, are just humans, so it lacks the strangeness, the phantasmagoria. Worth noting that every single, like the last four or five things we just discussed, are sci-fi in terms of, like, you can have a bunch of aliens there. Like the special executive, the, the tech net characters from yeah. Captain Britain. I think that's why people nowadays would like to read V for Vendetta and why they could easily yeah. understand it and like it because yeah. it's very realistic now so very very realistic on both sides of the pond yeah and it's uh, I think because of this and, and pretty much because after this we get into the DC stuff and it's superheroics. this is the most sedate comic Alan would do for a while in spite of Again, like blowing up London and all this other stuff. Um, because of that, it's it's somehow not as like fun or catchy the way some of his others are. Mm-hmm. But I honestly wonder if it's the most cohesive story that, like, a single narrative with a beginning, middle, and end that he would do prior to uh, Watchmen. And uh, the result, I mean, just to see this, like. There's about four different publishers doing five different versions of the Miracle Man library. Whereas, if you want to read V for Vendetta, it's just a Vertigo trade. You can just get it and read it in a weekend and you'll be done. Yeah. And it holds up uh, rather nicely in that regard. And this is not to say it doesn't have its moments. Like, excuse me, there's uh, real beauty in most of Alan's stories. So, if you remember, like, I think it's Glyph 
the character nobody can remember in a Halo Jones. Yes, that was a that was a really yeah, good story. That's, I like that. that's like this incredibly sad, lonely element that maybe resonates more than anything else in the entire story. Uh, there's all of these. We talked about some favorite moments from Miracle Band. Even Captain Britain, like, has its heart here and there. And there's stuff like that in V for Vendetta. Um, the it won't count as a spoiler, like, because it won't make any sense if you haven't read the thing. But when Evie talks about the note uh, to, after she undergoes her trial, and V tells her like that, I didn't write the note. It was given to me by the the woman in room four or the woman in room six. And it's mm. just this, it, it follows what could almost be read as like a, a rape scene, to be honest. Like it, like the torture this woman goes through. But then it, it just brings you up short because you realize like the context in which this letter was created. So there's a lot of stuff like that. Um, the movie came out... And it's probably not the worst movie ever. Yeah. <laughs> but like most Alan Moore movies, it misses the point. Yeah. I, I feel like that's the thing with, with Alan Moore adaptations, including honestly, the new Watchmen series just sounds kind of stupid, to be honest. And the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie is god-awful. Yes. Like, to, to quote Brian Pesain, it sucks compared to other movies that suck. <laughs> like, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie isn't bad compared to Raiders of the Lost Ark. The Indiana, I'm sorry, uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie sucks compared to Jonah Hex. <laughs> um, I thought you liked Jonah Hex. The movie or the character? The, the movie. I liked it better than the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, yeah, the V for Dead movie is fine, but it uh, it soft pedals everything. And Alan writes the book as a serious conflict between anarchism and fascism because he he is a an actual anarchist in the traditional sense of the word. Whereas when you make it into a movie that costs a hundred million dollars or whatever, it has to be no, no, no. It's about liberal democracy versus Nazi fascism. Which, good, I mean, obviously one of those is the lesser of two evils, but but it's kind of anemic, right? It's the equivalent, the V for Vendetta movie is the guy who goes like, hey, by the way, I am not racist. Yeah. And which makes you think, there's, there's only two ways to respond to that, either, cool, do you want a cookie? <laughs> or, dude, you sound kind of racist. <laughs> And we made fun of, notoriously, uh, when the movie came out, uh, I remember there was, it was a wizard, you had some magazine at the time, where uh, it's like, an interview with Natalie Portman from uh, V for Vendetta, and you opened it up and you said, hey look, they got an interview with Natalie Portman, and in a mocking voice, I went, was it hard to shave your head for a movie? And I think then, we both said yeah, that. And then you opened it up, the first question was, what was it like shaving your head for the film? <laughs> Yeah. Um, which kind of sums it up, I suppose. Like, like it's not bad, but that's what people remember about the movie. Like, wow, Natalie Portman shaved her head. It must have taken her, like, two months to grow her hair back. Wow, that, like, I hope Joel Silver and the Wachowski brothers got her a watch band and some combs to make up for her shaving her head. 
Um, it's interesting uh, what it's interesting about uh, V for Vendetta. You mentioned the uh, the part the letter from the woman from room four. Yeah, I can't remember it's four or six. It's the adjoining room. Yeah, yeah, but um, it was on Matt Baum's podcast, The Sewers of Paris. Uh, shout out to Matt Baum. Um, Hi. <laughs> um, he, he had someone on who was talking about uh, V for Vendetta and Alan Moore. And the guy said, you know, I was deeply moved by the queer element and the relationship between the woman and Evie. Uh, the main character. Yeah, because she's in prison for being a lesbian. Yeah. And uh, the guy said, it blew me away that this beautiful queer relationship was written by a straight, white, cis man. He said, blew me away. And the, that's the thing of Alan's, is that... You know, there's the thing now, like, what gives you the right to tell that story, to tell someone else's story? Alan is good at telling a lot of stories, you know? Well, I think that's true, and he has his blind spots the same way even the best writers do. We could spend a whole other episode pointing out what does and doesn't work, but, uh, like, his characters are predominantly white for most of his run. Yeah. Uh, like, the occasional character, like, you know, the Fire Drake from Miracle Man doesn't, doesn't really, like, offset that much. But then he gets to a series, like, uh, you know, like, his ABC work has, like, Promethea in top ten. Suddenly, it's uh, diverse as hell. Yeah. And he makes the transition pretty easily. Um, yeah, like, I'm, I'm sure people are going to roll their eyes at this, and like point to the weaker links, but I do think he does well with female characters. I do think he does well with queer characters. Um, apparently, uh, I don't know how it developed, but when he started out, he took sort of a method acting approach to writing. I remember you telling me once when he wrote Etrigan for Swamp Thing, he would like put in like Dracula fangs and like just feel how it sounded to talk with them. And his characters are characters. Yeah. So when he writes, uh, I, I know like three people have read it besides myself, but like his novel Jerusalem, where every chapter is a different perspective. He is not one of those writers where it sounds like a bunch of Alan Moores saying clever things to each other. Yeah. This, the same way you have, even good writers are like, wow, look at how many Joss Whedons we crammed onto one spaceship. Hmm. That's a good idea, old Joss Whedon. What do you think, teenage girl Joss Whedon? Something witty, I'm sure. Like, no, he actually is able to write demons and plant monsters and collective space intelligences and sociopaths. So the fact that he could write a lesbian character with at least some competence, hmm. uh, Maybe it's not on par with, like, uh, oranges are not the only fruit, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I'm with you there. He does that, and again, back when 
you know, like fag bashing is still very much in vogue. Uh, he's doing this stuff in like, like when would that V for Vendetta story have been published? Like 1986? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yikes. Jesus. Like, I, I don't want to get into like AIDS and stuff. That's a little heavier than we maybe want to discuss here, but that that's the tone we're setting. It was like, like, don't let a gay guy sneeze on you. And in the midst of that, he's mm. writing these sympathetic characters and portrayals and everything. Yeah, I think one of the best things that came out that came out of *V for Vendetta* was uh, the vicious cabaret, which is a song yes. that was it was written by Alan and performed by David J. Uh, under their kind of fake band, the March of the Sinister Ducks. Yeah. Well, they. The band is the Sinister Ducks, and then the song is the March of the Sinister Ducks, right? Or is the band the March of the Sinister Ducks? I think the band is the Sinister Ducks, and the album is the March of the okay. Sinister Ducks. It wasn't like a Flight of the Concords thing. Yeah, David J. from uh, Bauhaus or Bajas or however you want to pronounce it, um, obviously incredibly talented in his own right, he does uh, a short play. Um, and uh, I guess, what is it, an LP or an EP? EP. LPs mm -hmm. are actual albums. Um, and it is incidental music for V for Vendetta, like unsettling uh, techno instrumentals. And then it has his uh, lyrical piece. Um, I think there's two. There's the song from the Kitty Cat Keller, uh, which is his like Nazi cabaret song. And then this Vicious Cabaret, which... V plays in the second book of the uh, of V for Vendetta, the collection, and they actually have the notes and everything. Yeah, like you can play it if you know the. Yeah, he, you see V playing piano accurately, and it's like we talk about how Alan is sometimes a little overwritten. Here, that's a benefit because it has this incredibly dense wordplayistic poetic. You know, in no longer gritty cities, there are fingers in the kitties, there are warrants, forms, and chitties, and a jackboot on the stairs, sex and death and human grime and monochrome for one thin time. Like, like there's too much of it, but there's supposed to be, because V is a very poetic character. Yeah, um, it's like a show tune. It's like a dark show tune. Yeah, and it's incredibly dark, um, and th this is... The, the book, this is reflecting like the Nazi fascist world in which the series takes place. But the thing is meant to be presented by like one of these monsters that is running the government. It's it's like a satirical song in that sense. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that what the final line is uh, there'll be laughter and malarkeys, but no queers or yids or darkies within this bastard's carnival, this vicious cabaret. Like yeah. Which sums up the the ugliness of V's world, which again was meant to just be a loose extrapolation. Like Alan wrote this during Thatcher era England, mm. and for somebody as far left as he is, or anarcho left, like whatever distinctions we want to get into, that was his way of going like, oh, this is like fifteen percent exaggerated from reality. Um, and it's from there, by the way, I know we'll probably shift shortly to his DC work, but mm -hmm. 
because he is such a prolific guy, he's actually writing Swamp Thing while while he is doing all of this. That's pretty good. Yeah. And in fact, I think V and Miracle Man both have these sizable gaps between their second and third volumes. They're both trilogies, technically. He comes back to them after a few years and finally gets to finish them. Uh, v for DC, which ends up going pretty smoothly, which is why it remains in print in a single handsome collection. Miracle Man for Eclipse Comics, which is why it is such a goddamn rights fiasco and they were impossible to find for the better part of 20 years. Um, so anyways, I've been talking for a while. I'll turn it back over to you. Uh, yeah, you mentioned Swamp Thing. We have, I'm going to go over both of these, Swamp Thing and Hellblazer. Uh-huh. We have Swamp Thing, which is, uh, if you would like a bastardized version of Swamp Thing, watch the movies. Um, Hellblazer, if you would like a bastardized but still entertaining version of that, uh, watch Constantine the yeah. movie. Which, um, I gotta give props, Constantine was something that I avoided for like 15 years, because I was like, Keanu's not a good actor, which he's not. I like him, but he's not the best actor in the world. Yeah. Um, I didn't like, it's like, hey, we're going to take a, you know, English mage John Constantine and turn him into LA-based paranormal detective John Constantine. And I was like, fuck this. And I just, like, hated it so much on a conceptual level. And then, finally, my girlfriend got me to watch it last year, and I'm like, oh, this is, this is just fun. Yeah. Not the best movie ever. This is, like, fun as hell. It's a good-looking movie. It's well-made. Peter Stormare as the first of the Fallen, that alone is worth watching the movie. This quirky, eyebrowless Swedish guy going, Oh my God, I've got a whole roller coaster and amusement park planned for you. <laughs> it's, it's so good, it's just night and day from the character. So, But that, that's a case where me being a purist, I'm like... Yeah, like, I'm mad that they, like, ruined the League or they ruined from Hell. Hellblazer's not even... Like, Constantine isn't even Hellblazer, so it doesn't even ruin it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, uh, so we have Hellblazer, which Alan does not actually write. Right. Yeah. So what can you tell me about these? Um, Hellblazer, which... Uh, when they, It's interesting, because when they made it into a movie... They had to call it Constantine because it was too close to Clive Barker's Hellraiser. Which, by the way, Hellblazer, stupid title. Yeah. I, like, I get why it's still like the late 80s. You probably couldn't just call a book John Constantine. Yeah. But I guess you. it had to be like somebody's name. It could have just been John Constantine the Hellblazer. Yeah, oh, that's too much of a mouthful, really. But but even, it's it's just like, Hellblazer. It's the Vertigo equivalent of an image character being named, like, Night Raven. He blazes hell. The hells of fires blaze. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. And also, he doesn't. <laughs> like, it's not even his... Like, you could call Ghost Rider Hellblazer and get away with it. What... What does John Constantine do in those comics that qualifies as blazing hell? 
I get, he like, stays out of hell. That's the point. Yes. That's hell. the entire point. No. Okay. He I guess, out of I hell. guess what we're saying is the comic that ran for 300 plus issues should have been called John Constantine Hell Avoider. <laughs> so, um, what do you think of Swamp Thing? The Swamp Thing I really love. John Tottleman's artwork is amazing. Yeah. And. There's uh, a diverse I'm, team of artists, so he doesn't. He's not the only one doing it. But when you land, when you get like a Tottleman issue, which by the end of the run is like you only get it like once a year, you're like, oh boy, you put on like a little bib with a tree on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing about Swamp Thing that I really love, um, Alan is really good at doing villains, like creating just despicable, despicable, absolutely despicable villains. And one of his worst, best, I mean, one of his worst is Dr. Anton Arcane, who creates, and I love this name, his unmen. Yeah. Or as I call them, women. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Swamp Thing, who... It's my handmaid's tail poking up. <laughs> Swamp Thing, who, as uh, Alan described him, a walking pile of compost who haunts the Louisiana bayou. Mm-hmm. I, always, I just always love that description. Yeah. So enough about James Carville, though. Let's talk about <laughs> Yeah, the Swamp Thing, it was funny, not too long ago I was listening to a Leslie Leon Struggle session, and he says Swamp Thing has a really underappreciated run in other media. He goes, you do know that Swamp Thing has two movies and three TV series? Yeah, more than one would think, right? So this continues the tradition of Alan is handed uh, nothing. They gave him Swamp Thing because their the book was going to be canceled. It was not popular. With all love to like, was it like Len Wayne and Mark Wolfman and those guys, like cool creators? Swamp Thing is not an interesting character conceptually. He's ju- just Bog Frankenstein. He wanders around and scares people and like plantation owners, and that's about it. I guess that's pretty cool when you put it like that. There's there's a huge controversy as to who came first, Man Thing or Swamp Thing. It was basically like kind of shared thinking. Yeah, well, it was like how Doom Patrol and X Men came out the same month, and you're like, huh? Parallel, and, and even yeah, parallel then, thinking. it would be one thing if you were the guy who came up with uh, the Joker. I can understand not wanting to be like ripped off or somebody else taking credit. What's the controversy there? I came up with a big green piece of shit that doesn't do anything. Hey, buddy, I was just writing a book about a big green piece of shit that doesn't do anything. Then the creator of the Heap comes in and goes, yes. "Ah, both of your heads are full of stupid." <laughs> I was gonna mention the heap. Like, just gonna mention the heap. It's it's a fun, like, idea and a design and everything. It's nothing you'd want to read stories about. Like, oh, what lady in a dress will he scare on her porch? This issue. I'm probably underselling it. Anyways, um, so he takes over. He does. I mean, it would take another hour to do the actual plot synopsis for his Swamp Thing run, but. He starts it like Captain Britain. Uh, he wipes out 
all but a few of uh, the supporting cast. Uh, he ties off loose ends. He begins with the anatomy lesson where the delightful side character, Dr. Jason Woodrow, um, it, I love Woodrow, by the way. He's, he's like a D-list villain who became fun when Alan writes him. And he appears in Batman and Robin, the movie Batman and Robin. He's, I'm, I'll just go on record. He's the best thing about that movie, right? Yes. You have John Glover, delightful. Yes. It's, I'm getting my Glovers right, right? Yeah. You have John Glover uh, in like this short role where he... Looks kills, like Dr. Clinton Forrester looks from, like, you know, from MST3K. He looks like Dr. Forrester. Having the time of his life, for the time when he is on screen, it's a Joe Dante movie, and then he gets killed all too quickly, and the rest of the movie is Don Bain and Uma Thurman, who's awesome, but she plays the character like a male drag queen. <laughs> like It's such a... <laughs> Like, it's somehow too campy for the movie. Um, and, uh, by the way, there's this. When he's creating Bane in his lab, and he has, like, Idiomine and Polpon, like, all these evil people are bidding on his new super soldier. And he says, ah, we just got a bid in from our uh, anonymous donor, uh, like a telephone call. I like the fan theory. It was, like, oh, it's Rachel Ghoul. Yeah, yeah. Like I always loved that. I even like going back to when I first saw that movie. You told me, you know, it's supposed to be Rachel Gould, don't yeah. you? This otherwise terrible movie. There, it's the one thing that elicits like a Dark Knight style fan theory for me. Where I'm like, I bet the guy who was gonna buy Jeep Swenson was actually Rachel Gould. We need to do an episode about Batman and Robin, by the way. I'll stake my flag here. I have said this before. I will say it again. Batman and Robin is terrible. If it came out today, it would be well-received because of how queer it is. Yes. Yeah, and I, I, nobody get mad. I'm saying queer in, like, the reclaimed academic no derisiveness, not, like, two for flinch and queer. Like, not in that sense of the word. Like, queer cinema. It is so huge and weird and strange I watch that and I'm like, I like Batman and Robin might be better than Batman Forever because at least it's something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, anyways, wow, we, we really went off on Woodrow there, didn't we? I just like yeah. how there's this weirdo who looks like Pan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so they find out the big change Alan does is that Alec Holland is dead. Swamp Thing is a composite of organic material that dreamed that it was a man. And uh, you mentioned, like, the pile of compost. The other description, they said Alan Moore wrote him as though he was Hamlet covered in snot, I believe was the phrase. Yeah, he's he's not a man who became a plant. He's a plant with delusions of grandeur. Yeah. And there, (laughs) um, in a roundabout way, it is impossible to overstate how influential Swamp Thing is. Like, in a, in a more subtle fashion, I would say it's it maybe leaves as much of a uh, footprint as Watchmen does. Because Watchmen was, after it came out, every idiot was like, oh, I could do that too. What if I wrote Watchmen and that was like the beginning and the end of their creativity? Um, Alan Moore's Watchmen, uh, Watchmen, uh, his Swamp Thing run is amazing. Everybody rips it off. 
So that period where if you had a character, they would die for an issue and then meet Deadman and Etrigan and go yeah. and, and the Spectre, that's because of that Alan Moore, Swamp Thing Annual number two. Um, the entire first year of Neil Gaiman's Sandman is him doing a pretty decent Alan Moore impression. He like he becomes his own thing eventually. And then you consider almost every Vertigo book is doing a bad Neil Gaiman impression. Yeah. And he was doing a Swamp Thing impression <laughs> uh, to the point where like even Matthew the Raven is Matthew Cable. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. Uh, you know, lately married to uh, uh, Abby Arcane. So Swamp Thing's terrific. And I, I know he did like stuff like Wildcats, which I've never read and don't really want to. It's really Alan's only mainstream ongoing comic. Really. Uh, like, even the ABC stuff, those usually don't last for more than 12 issues, or, like, Promethea is long, but it's self-contained. This was basically the only time you hired Alan to pick up a story somebody else did, and then actually write it for a couple of years, and then hand it off at the end. Mm-hmm. Like, I... I guess Captain Britain kind of counts, but that's a strip, whatever. Um, the result being that he does so much in there. His early run is really, really good horror stories, where he can bring in, like, uh, Etrigan and the Spectre. And then, with the return of Arcane, he decides, what if I did uh, the Divine Comedy, but with DC Comics characters? So you get, like, the... What is it? The the one where Swamp Thing goes into hell, like the annual. Probably one of the single, well, like single issue best comics ever written, right? Yeah, like far, pretty far up there. Yeah, something with staples in the spine that you can still read and enjoy all at once. Uh, and from there, like he does his issue about Pogo. <laughs> yeah. And then he does the the American Gothic storyline, and. This restless creativity meant, like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do a horror comic. Then when he does American Gothic, where he just writes every American monster you can think of, he then does, uh, it's volume five of the collections, where it's Abby and Swampy being reunited, where he does a love story. And the issue where Swamp Thing takes Gotham hostage. I love that issue. Is is that is such a great issue. Is that the best Batman comic ever? Yes. For those of you who don't know, um, what happens is that Abby and Swamp Thing are a couple, and of course they have sex. And by Ab- eating psychedelic yams. By eating psychedelic yams. Yes. And Abby is uh, jailed for dendrophilia, and uh, she's jailed in Gotham City. And needless to say, Swamp Thing does not like this, so he overruns Gotham City with plant life, just covering everything in plant life. And we get to see Batman with a flamethrower torching all of these plants. Uh It's just Swamp Thing screaming. And we get to hear Batman say, I forget the exact line, um... If you ever come back to Gotham again, I will kill you, or something to that effect. And Swamp Thing, there's like a little pause, and he does a Swamp Thing smile, and he says like, Yes, I suspect you would. And it's like, coming from an immortal plant god, 
Just as, talking to a dude dressed as a bat. Yeah. So that issue of, I think it's, I want to say it's issue 53. That's possibly the best Swamp Thing issue ever. Maybe the best Batman story ever. Probably one of the best Lex Luthor stories ever. <laughs> Which, that is such a cult moment. Like, the, the corporation that hates Swamp Thing and, like, wants to kill him. Like, this paramilitary outfit, this, like, spook show, whatever you want to call it. Um, they say, uh, like, gentlemen, in order to assist us, we have hired uh, Mr. Lex Luthor as a consultant. We are paying him, uh, uh, like, $1 million for a 10-minute consultation. And so Lex comes in, designs a gun that can... You can't kill Swamp Thing's body, but it can disrupt his, uh, his like, electric field so his mind can no longer arrange itself on Earth. Mm -hmm. And then, like, it's in the space of an issue. He comes in, draws it up, gives it to them, and they say, Mr. Luther, that was only nine minutes. And he's framed in the doorway. He says, yes, I wanted to leave you time to sign my check. And, like... This is a million times better than when he puts on his stupid green armor and punches Superman. <laughs> like, <laughs> this, it's maybe, okay, there's good Lex Luthor comics. It's maybe the best Lex Luthor scene ever. <laughs> yeah. So it's so good. And then the home stretch of Alan Moore's run is maybe not the strongest. Um, because he had done, like, I want to do horror, I want to do romance, I want to do history. He said he wanted to do science fiction. And so the last six issues or so are him meeting, like, Green Lanterns and uh, uh, Thanagarians while he's in space. And Adam Strange, I think. And it, it's not the best. Um, it Like, tonally, it feels too off from the other stuff. So I don't think the, the final volume is the highlight of the entire series. But it's still pretty fun, and you do get to see the issue where John Toddleben illustrates it using collage art, and Swamp Thing gets raped by a planet. So Isn't that the one... There, there's, a, there's an issue called, like, Ogmo Doesn't Socialize. That was a Green Lantern blackout. Mogo. Mogo Doesn't Socialize, yeah. where we find out that there's a Green Lantern that's an entire planet. Yeah, he did a bunch of Green Lantern backups. That's God, that's a whole other thing. Um... But yeah, so he wraps it up. His last story, uh, the wonderfully titled uh, The Return of the Good Gumbo. <clears throat> I'll go ahead and blow the, like, spoil a 35-year-old comic book, but I joked the other day on Twitter. I said, uh, we sure have a lot of stories that deal with what it means to be a superhero in the modern world, considering it's a job that doesn't actually exist. Yeah. And so Watchmen and Miracle Man both do that thing of, like, what would it actually mean to be a, a hero? What would a world with superheroes be like? And the last issue of Swamp Thing has this wonderful section where, because Swamp Thing is just plant god, mm -hmm. and that means he could save the earth. He could, he could regrow the rainforest, he could replenish the ozone layer, he could save mankind from a climate apocalypse, which we're still basically in. Um... He could do all of this and become a real hero, and then like he thinks about it for a few pages, and then he decides, no, I'm not going to. Because if I do that, then it's just me saving them. And 
it lets them off the hook. And if they, if they know that I'm there to help them, they will keep doing it. And then they will do it even worse than before. Mm-hmm. And they cannot do that. Mankind has to learn that there are consequences for what they do. And it is a more mature and interesting ethical and moral question than a whole bunch of like, does the world even need Daredevil? Yeah. And then by the end of the comic, it does. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but you tell me, among other things, Swamp Thing introduces uh, John Constantine, Hellavoider. Tell me a little bit about him. <laughs> Hell of Order? Hell of Order, yeah. Hell of Order, um... I think Thanos had a Hell of Order. <laughs> uh... I actually haven't read that many issues. I haven't read that many stories with uh, Hellblazer in them. He's a character that... I find... Interesting, but not really. I find him interesting, but not really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, here's here's a question, maybe. Do you think Constantine works better as a guest star or as a lead? Guest star. Yeah. I think that's the reason why I haven't yeah. read too many, because... Yeah, and it's... Hellblazer wound up being by far the longest running of any of the Vertigo-style comics, some of which predate Vertigo. Um, I'm kind of with you there. When he pops up in Swamp Thing, he's like funny and mysterious and like a scene stealer. And there, there are some very good Hellblazer comics, but it seems like it's there's like 300 pages. I'd say 200 of them are him not shaving and going like, "Oh, you bollocks!" Yeah. And it's it, it's like a character that can be very limited if you don't uh, find much to do with him. You know, I, I like he's gonna tell off a demon in this one. So. There are good stories. I like when he the Garth Ennis bit where he gets the three lords of hell to all buy his souls so that he, you know, none of them can collect on it, <laughs> and then one of them finds out that he actually can. So it's this pretty good uh, payoff there. I maybe just like that because it's Steve Dillon, so I occasionally feel like I'm reading Preacher. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it it doesn't do that much for me when he's on his own. Like I say, there's there's highs and lows. Um, there was a quote that always stuck with me. Uh, there's the first writer uh, on Hellblazer was uh, Jamie Delano. He's a pretty pretty talented writer. And he did a scene uh, that Alan actually criticized indirectly. He didn't, like, go after him, but somebody said, like, what do you think of Jamie Delano's Hellblazer? And he said, it doesn't do anything for me. And he said there, there was a scene, apparently, where, like, a guy is being tormented and an evil Winnie the Pooh appears and, like, drags him down to hell. And it, it probably makes more sense in the context of the story. Mm-hmm. And he said, like, the, the scene with, like, the demon Winnie the Pooh, it's it's so camp, it's so silly, like, it, it's such a ridiculous take. And, you know, with all the love in the world, I'm like, this is the guy who ended one of his League volumes with Mary Poppins beats the Antichrist. The Antichrist, who is Harry Potter? Yeah. Well, we'll get into League on a later episode, right? Yeah. Yeah, I... 
I don't know, man. Like, I, I love Alan, but even he is, like, occasionally is a hypocrite. Puts his foot in his mouth. I'll at least say that. Yeah. Um, so that's that's your preview there, but I said Miracle Man was one that went from, like, a 10 to an 8, so mm-hmm. to speak. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is probably the Alan Moore work that I have fallen most out of love with. Uh, from start to finish, and we probably just need to do a whole episode on that sometime. Well, yeah, do that Jer- later. Jeremy. Also, can we do an episode about Blade Runner? <laughs> the last three things I would like to talk about are uh, basically the three things that he worked on. I guess you could say two and a half things he worked on before things start to go sour with DC, and those are Watchmen. Twilight of the Superheroes, and Killing Joke. Okay. Now, with Watchmen, um, I don't think that there is anything that I can say about Watchmen that has not already been said good by good people and by bad people, mm-hmm. by people who are right and by people who are wrong. Read it. If you have not read Watchmen, I don't know why you would be listening to this if you have not read Watchmen, but read Watchmen. It is... You need to have a picture of a Dan Dryberg Night Owl <laughs> and just have the crest of the clown, give a hoot, read a book. <laughs> if you have not read Watchmen, read it. If you have seen the movie, read it. And because it, yeah. you are missing out on so, so much more. Um, I watched the, uh, I didn't really watch it, I had it on the background, the, uh, TV show, it was absolute drag to me at least, but, uh, that's my take on Watchmen. Yeah, the, I don't know, the HBO series, uh, I feel like the, there's, like, a Truman Show thing of people going, like, no, no, it's really good, and I'm like, what the hell? Am I on candid camera? <laughs> yeah. Um, honestly, well, I mean, Watchmen is amazing. If you if you don't know Watchmen and have an opinion on Watchmen, I'm not sure why you'd be listening to the Alan Moore podcast. Uh, so we don't really need to shed a lot of blood on that one. Um I'm honestly kind of tired of Watchmen. Yeah, not the book. It's, not the book itself, which I can reread and notice new things and just exclaim over. But uh, and I like I even teach a course on Watchmen every now and again. But it's it's the property like maybe short of Star Wars. It's the property where I'm like, yeah, can we talk? Like, you, you know, he wrote some other stuff too, right? <laughs> um, for those of you who don't know, Nathaniel is a teacher. Yeah, not a good one, <laughs> but they occasionally pay me to talk about books. Um, so, you got your Watchmen's. Uh, that's its own thing. If we're talking about the solar system, I guess that's the sun, or at least Jupiter. Uh, or Sally Jupiter, in this case. Um, Twilight of the Superheroes, that's... Maybe, do we want to talk about that, or do we want to do Killing Joke first? Um, I will speak briefly about Twilight of the Superheroes. Um, 
You go, girl. I wish I wish it had been done. Yeah. I wish it had been done. It sounds like what it would have been would be what Watchmen is to the Charlton characters. Twilight of the Superheroes is to the quality comics characters. And by that I mean Plastic Man, Human Bomb, Black Condor, Doll Man and Doll Woman, Phantom Lady, now, you know, all them. Was it going to include the mainstream DC characters as well? Yes, they were going to be in houses, like oh, yeah. like House. Alike in Dignity. What? Alike in Dignity. Yes. Yeah. Houses like House Atreides, House Arconan, House Baratheon, you know, the House stuff Atreides. like that. Yeah. Um, and I think what happened, interestingly enough, is Alex Ross may have... Copied? Co- copied, yes. He may have read it, he may have read the outline and just made it into Kingdom Come. Sure seems that way. Um, well, I, whatever, I'm, I'm being snotty. I shouldn't go like, oh, he copied it. Any more than anybody writing any DC comic is kind of copying Alan Moore for the next 20 years. Uh, so I'm being unfair, I suppose. But yeah, it was... If you don't know what we're talking about, if you don't see this on Alan's bibliography, it's because it doesn't exist. It was his planned uh, mega storyline. It would include the DC, not whereas Watchmen was like a maxi series and self-contained. Mm-hmm. This would be an incontinuity thing, or in, in so much as it's like set in the future. It would have been as big as like Crisis on Infinite Earths. Yeah, maybe. and the people, like the editors who saw it, his contemporaries said, like if he had published this, it would have been, if not his masterpiece, at least like his superhero masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Which is really easy to say. It's like, like I think the best thing Alan ever wrote was from Hell. But because there's only two issues of Big Numbers, you can go. If he had finished Big Numbers, that would have been the greatest thing he ever wrote. So I don't know. Like maybe Twilight of the Superheroes would have outdone Watchmen and Swamp Thing and Miracle Man. Maybe it just would have been pretty good. The it, the outline is still available online. Like it sure as hell sounds good. It would certainly be the the best John Constantine story ever, um, given his role in the book. But and, and they had plans for it, man. They were gonna do like like Mayfair Games would do the role playing game. Mm-hmm. It would spill over. It would like have these tie-ins and spin-offs. It was this big thing. But DC decided like, hey, you know how Alan keeps laying golden eggs. If we cut Alan open, we could get all the golden eggs at once. (laughs) So, sorry, there's much to be said about the legal fallout between Alan Moore and uh, DC. That's basically it in a nutshell, I think. So, I would love to have read this. I think it would have been uh, pretty interesting, but instead, uh, I don't know, maybe reading the outline, maybe it's like... The idea for a story of this size is better than any actual story could have been. He actually does foreshadow it, by the way. During Crisis on Infinite Earths, because that overlaps with his Swamp Thing run. It's very awkward. Every DC comic had to have a Crisis issue. Yeah. So in the middle of his 
apocalypse, underworld, swamp thing narrative right before what should be the climax. They have to go to a crisis crossover with, like, Lex Luthor. <laughs> yeah. It's not unreadable, but it's, it's like, so corporately mandated it really sticks out. And there is a bit in there where uh, they foresee a version of Ragnarok, but... Uh, I think it's there. They, I think they do this in a Neil Gaiman comic too, but I think it pops up in Alan Moore's run. They foresee the Twilight of the Gods, but it's with superheroes, which is what this would have been. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, then there's just the incidental stuff, right? Like he does like a vigilante story, some Green Lantern stories, which the stuff he wrote like 30 years ago is a joke, but people are still copying it. Yeah, like Jeff Johns' entire Green Lantern run is based on a sentence by Alan Moore. <laughs> yeah. Um, as far as like Superman, Batman, any of that, you want to get into? Or is... I wanted to finish up just with Killing Joke. Okay. Um, Killing Joke is people have called it the best Joker story. Um. You. It's you could call it his origin. You could call it his best story. I don't think it's either because, as he puts it himself in the story, uh, my history is multiple choice. Uh -huh. So, you know, I I was personally I always liked if Joker was just he had no origin. There there was no tragedy. He was he was just like yeah. that. To quote Thomas Harris with Lecter, like nothing happened to me. I happened. Yeah, yeah, I think that would be the best origin for Joker. It's just that no origin. Um it is his origin, basically. It involves him as the Red Hood. Um uh, it's it's a good story, but it's it's very problematic, and I don't like using that word, but it is very problematic because we have the shooting of Barbara Gordon, mm -hmm. which is, you know, when it was written, it wasn't really that nice. Now it's even not nicer. I remember when he was speaking to Jeanette Kahn, about, uh... Because it would be a big deal, you know, like, crippling Batgirl for the rest of... Yeah, and it's not, like, an Elseworlds thing. Yeah, it's or, not an Elseworlds like story. that weird, uh... Brian Azzarello Joker story, I think it was him, where it came out around Dark Knight, and it's just... It's just self-contained. Like No, like, she was in a wheelchair after that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah uh... Alan Moore was speaking to Jeanette Kahn, who was the uh, big wig at um, DC at the time, and he asked her, you know, can I write this? Can I, can I do this storyline? And she said, and I'm quoting Jeanette Kahn, cripple the bitch. Was this Jeanette Kahn, or I thought it was like his editor at the time or something? I like the quote. I, I had always heard Jeanette Kahn. Okay. Uh, I guess people can fact check us. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Like, yeah, if we're wrong, we're wrong. I, I think, I don't think he like went to the president of the company, but I, I might be misunderstanding. Um, yeah, and he's, he, he has uh, disowned the comic. Like he, he doesn't like talking about any of his superhero stuff now. Like he, 
he won't discuss it, which I think is totally fair. But even well before he had disowned Watchmen and V and stuff, he would, he said, like, I don't like Killing Joke, I regret writing it. There's a Batman annual he did about uh, Clayface, the third Clayface that can melt people. Preston Payne? Yeah, um, Falls in Love with a Mannequin. And he said, oh, that that's my best Batman story. And then you read it and you go... Well, no, it's not. Killing Joke is your best Batman story. <laughs> no, uh, the Swamp Thing thing is his best Batman story, if you want to split hairs. But, um, I know, uh, Killing Joke is a tricky one. It is worth reading for the Brian Boland art. Yes, like, beautiful art. And, man, especially, usually I don't like when they tamper with these things, but when they re-released it, like, he... He went back and, like, colored it the way he had intended. Mm-hmm. So, like, the new hardcover edition of this, like, 40-page comic, um, it is one of the best-looking comics you are going to see. And there's stuff I like about it. I, I don't actually mind Joker having an origin because that character is so fluid, so malleable, that the same way he can be, like, a prankster and, like... Hitler, depending on the story, depending on what they need to do. Yeah. You could do a version of him where he's like Arthur Fleck or this poor stand up comedian whose wife died. And then you could do another version where it's he's Jack like, Napier. Jack Napier or the the uh Chris Nolan one where he I always like the idea that he might be a soldier. That's kind of a cool theory. Um there's a lot going on there. It looks good. The ending is... I love the ending so much. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> the ending. But but taking it in the larger context, there's so much going on there where... It, and, yeah, like, the, the Barbara Gordon thing is, like, the most unfortunate part of the comic. But more than that, it hits the point where you're like, should this be a Batman story? Yeah, like, kind of. I, I never know how to feel about that. Like, I, I actually like when the Batman stories are a little darker and more serious. When you, like, Joker straight up murders people instead of, like, ha oh, ha, I sprayed my water, my lapel acid onto your car. You won't be chasing me, detective. That's how Joker sounds. <laughs> like, I, I do like. That to hell with Mark Hamill. That's how he sounds. Yeah. <laughs> hi, I'm, oh, hi, I'm Mark Hamill. I'm here for the Star Wars audition. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, just put him in that box, Harley. Huh? Um, I so I, I don't mind any one aspect of it, but when you take the whole thing together, it does feel like I don't know. Maybe this was in poor taste. Maybe. Maybe it looks really cool. Maybe it's like like the baddest ass Joker that you're ever going to see. And at the same time, it's like, did you have to like shoot Batgirl and then she's in a wheelchair? Then they did that god awful movie version. Oh god, the cartoon. Jesus. Oh man. Like we could do an episode on that. I am going to do an episode on. The movie adaption okay. of Elmore's work. Don't then worry. I'll, maybe I should have bitten my tongue earlier. <laughs> um, oh, God. It's just... They were like, well, there's a lot of issues with the original comics, so we're going to fix them. Then it makes everything exponentially worse and grosser. Like, 
Mm -hmm. Like, here's the alphabetical list of good things about the the Killing Joke cartoon. Mark Hamill's voice sounds cool. That is all. Kevin Conroy's voice sounds cool. He's, He's back, too, but... Man, so... Yeah, I get it. Like, there, there's so many elements in Killing Joke I enjoy. And yet it's a comic where people go, yeah, that's stupid bullshit. I don't need a comic about, like, a clown who, like, shoots a lady and, like, maybe molests her afterwards. Yeah. It's this whole thing where I'm like, I don't know. At the end of the day, this is a character that, you know, I could buy underwear at Walmart that has his picture on them. So I'm not sure how to square that circle, to be honest. But, uh, oh, and then we have three really good Superman stories and a bunch of, like, backup stuff, and I don't know, Alan just, he's pretty good, and then DC blows it. <laughs> yeah, DC totally blows it. And then Alan goes off on his own, but we will save that for another episode. Yes, with some some of the best comics ever written and some of the worst comics ever written. <laughs> yes. Uh... We're wrapping up this episode. Um, I just want to tell folks that uh, you can find me on YouTube. My name is my YouTube name is Ringo Phonebonius Jones. That's Ringo as in Ringo Star. Phonebonius Jones. Just spelled. how it's spelled. <laughs> yeah, just how it's spelled. Just how it's pronounced. I blew it. Phonebonius Jones spelled. F-O-N-E-B-O-N-I-U-S and Jones as in Doug Jones. You can find me uh, on YouTube under that name. I just do voices and silliness, just random silliness. Where can we find you, Nathaniel? Oh, around. (laughs) Just Uh, around? Yeah. I got got an Insta... I run uh, another uh, better podcast <laughs> with my friend, uh, the Pretendium Compendium, where the, I don't know, the write-up says that we do uh, Dungeons and Dragons, uh, but that's a pretty broad umbrella. We talk about fantasy-themed stuff in general. Um, yeah, we're pretendiumpod.com, uh, Pretendium Compendium, if you want to look us up on your apps. And uh, we're uh, at the Pretendium on Twitter, so the Pretendium Compendium. Yeah, I publish stuff and try not to talk too much about uh, the election, and mostly just stick to like funny pictures of monsters, and sometimes fail. <laughs> so yeah. Anyways, uh, it's been a treat. <laughs> yeah. Thank you everyone for listening, and that's all I have to say. that's all, folks. Hello. 
If you can, please get the charities for those disenfranchised in these still troubled times. An example might be the Elber Project, which helps black trans people with food, shelter, and other means of life. Also, support the Trevor Project, a mental health hotline for LGBTQ youths in trouble. Uh, as for Nathaniel, you can find him at the Pretendium Compendium, his own podcast, where he talks about Dungeons and Dragons and other fantasy fare. Uh, if you would like to see more of me, you can find me on my YouTube channel, Jeans, which is J-E-E-M-S. You can find me on my Tumblr, which is also Jeans, my TikTok, Jeans84, my Twitter, the show's Twitter is at Tolerable, and I'm at MyPlanetIsJ, and you can find me on my Instagram at, at MyPlanetIsJeremy. Uh, we are available on Anchor, SoundCloud, Spotify, and several other podcast platforms. Now, on with the show. Thank uh-huh.